echoes of the past. Adleisiair Gorffennol Hello, I'm Ian McRae and I'm a volunteer researcher for the Pembroke Dock Sunderland Trust. I've been working intensively on the history of some of the regiments with connections to Pembrokeshire. Every year, thousands of visitors arrive to take advantage of Pembrokeshire's beaches, walking paths like the Coast Path, water sports, historic towns, city and villages. It's a recreational paradise. Strictly speaking, Pembroke Dock isn't a garrison town, but the military have used the area for training and exercises, guarding the Haven Waterway and its forts, and en route to foreign conflict. Evidence still exists of the forts ringing the haven, many visible from the coast path. Sadly, access is limited to most of them, and many are in terminal decline. The forts were an early response to fears of a French invasion during the Napoleonic Wars. Prime Minister Palmerston distrusted their motives, believing they were foreign adventures. But the invasion never materialised, and the nickname Palmerston Follies haunted him for many years. This, coupled with technological advances in artillery, led to their obsolescence, and their decline was inevitable. Some, but not all. There are three accessible sites around the Haven, and one at Tenby. West Blockhouse Fort, on the cliffs north of the Haven, predates the other forts, having been built at the orders of Henry VIII around 1500, in response to earlier invasion fields, and was apparently wildly expensive. Unused for centuries, and briefly restored in the 1850s Napoleonic panics, in the rearmament programmes of the 1900s, its guns were updated, and it ended life as a searchlight battery in World War II. Saved from dereliction, and rebuilt by the Landmark Trust in 1969, it's now a thriving short-term holiday letting venue. The fort at Chapel Bay, near the village of Angle, another Napoleonic fort, was fitted with more modern breech-loading guns in 1900, decommissioned and sold to a private interest. Used for various tasks during World War II, it's now a military museum, developed by a retired Royal Artillery officer. Another fort at Dale, on the northern coast, dates from 1858, unused until 1902 when it was sold as a private home. In World War I, it housed troops en route to India. Then, units of the Royal Garrison Artillery and the Royal Engineers, manning searchlights. Requisitioned by the military, it was used in the Second World War, once again for searchlights. In 1946, it was rescued from dilapidation and developed as a field study centre, available to students and researchers in biology and residential courses. There are several other forts, all of them inaccessible to the public and all in a derelict state. The small island fort at Stack Rock, one of the two ordered by Henry VIII in 1539, after use by the militia in the 1800s, was disarmed and abandoned in spite of some attempts at development. The two towers at Pembroke Dock, built in the 1850s, at one time housed artillery personnel, and in the case of the Front Street Tower, the civilian's family, 
and were disarmed in 1855, then used as storehouses. The Fort Road Tower is in private ownership, while the other housed a museum, now sadly closed due to water damage. Popton Fort and Barracks, near the coast path, was closed in 1805, and temporarily used as a flare path in World War II. It's now part of the Texaco Valero oil complex. Another fort at South Hook met the same fate, being sold privately, then abandoned in 1930. Recommissioned by the Navy, it housed wrens in wartime, before being taken over by the liquid gas complex. Two forts, one at Thorn Island, the other inland at Silverstone, are both derelict. The former sold and developed as a hotel, resold and further abandoned in the early 2000s. Silverstone had some use as a training venue, then as an air raid shelter and finally an ammunition store. The fort at Hubberston was in use in the 1890s by the artillery, then as a military summer camp, an RA battery and finally, after failed development plans, as an air raid shelter in 1941. One fort remains at Tembe. St Catherine's Fort was designed to meet a possible overland threat. It started its military roles in 1886, occupied by the Royal Navy Reserve. It was requisitioned in World War II, garrisoned by the Royal Artillery. Now manned by volunteers visits are possible by appointment. The now demolished brick barracks at Penar, once a torpedo and submarine depot, were then home to the Royal Engineers. As a young lieutenant, Charles, later General Gordon, a Victorian icon, was based here in lodgings, learning map-making, later to achieve fame and some notoriety as Chinese Gordon, and then martyrdom as Gordon of Khartoum. The forts never fulfilled the role they were designed for, protecting the haven from attack, the threat, when it came was from the air, not from the land. Two units manned the fort over three centuries when the local irregular volunteer forces were supported by the Royal Artillery and the Royal Marines, training the former in gunnery and sharing their discomforts. The Royal Artillery's formal development began in the 18th century when William III ordered the first regular artillery regiment for suppressing civil unrest. During the 1700s, the regiment fought in various European conflicts, mainly during sieges. Later, in the 1800s, it grew, fighting in China, the Crimea, India and South Africa. The regiment evolved into a highly technical body, with promotion by merit rather than by purchase, as was the norm. By 1872, it could boast 29 horse batteries, 32 field batteries and 85 heavies, by that time, there were 35,000 men on the strength. Life in the fort must have been a soul-destroying routine of drills, exercises and watch-keeping in damp, claustrophobic quarters for an enemy that never came. It's hardly surprising that the townspeople came to be apprehensive of Friday night payday, when some could escape and blow off steam. There were occasional brawls, suicides and, in one case, murder. A Dr Alder was killed by Lieutenant Walter of the militia in a drunken fight on the remote and unpopular Hudberston Fort. But the volunteer units would remain at their post, 
whilst the gunners would be called on for overseas assignments, but a number would volunteer for foreign service with the regular regiments and later be absorbed into the territorials. The Royal Artillery, after taking control of the guns at Pembroke Dock, went to serve in the Crimea with several batteries. Largely uninvolved in the battles at the Alma and Inkerman, there were traditional soldiers' wars, the regiment was more active in artillery duels with the Russian guns at Sebastopol. Then, in the Boer War, both the regular troops and the RA were faced with an enemy who wouldn't play the traditional game, camouflaging their guns in trenches and using hard-to-spot smokeless shells. The net result was a series of defeats for the British. Only when the regiment innovated into horse-drawn artillery did things improve, but the same outdated tactics were employed in the First World War. Several days of massive barrages of artillery. Then the infantry would rush across into the enemy's lines and the cavalry should sweep all before them. The practice was very different. Warned in advance, the Germans would suffer the guns, well entrenched, and emerge to lay waste to the infantry, and not least to the artillery resulting in huge losses of men and guns. Finally, lessons were learned when infantry and guns were coordinated, and these tactics carried forward into World War II paid dividends, particularly in North Africa, when Montgomery had the use of 900 guns, and by the end of the war, nearly one million men were in the force. The other formations with a connection to Pembroke Dock, other Royal Marines, their beginnings in the early 1600s were from noble stock. In their case, the Duke of York and Albany's Maritime Regiment of Foot, highlighting their role on board the Navy ships. Their royal title was bestowed by George III in 1802. The formation of the Royal Marines Artillery, the Royal Marines Light Infantry, followed. They were early arrivals at PDE, being the earliest troops at the defensible barracks quartered there in 1845, after being under canvas on a beached sailing ship. They show up on ceremonial duties at the consecration of St John's Church and on guard duties at the gun towers as the RMA. A contingent of 400 of the RMA arrived in 1880 as a precaution against possible Fenian troubles, and later as B Company, Royal Marine 41 Commando, and finally arriving and departing quietly in just one month at Penale, the RMA Brigade, the 102nd, as anti-tank batteries and in an anti-aircraft role. The great waves of recruitment for the needs of major conflicts, such as the Crimea and the Boer War, led to the need for barracks for the troops. Many visitors to the region pass a farm as they pass through the romantically named village of Red Roses. This is the original site of Bush Camp, at the time home to many thousands of troops under canvas, then in huts. In Pembroke Dock itself, there were barracks at Lanyon. These evolved into one of the most state-of-the-art facilities, but all that remains now are some council offices and a block of flats the army leaving the original site in 1967. It's at the defensible barracks that the two types of military, regular and irregular, shared a home. After the Marines, 
the Royal North Gloucester Militia occupied the defensible. They were to become the Gloucester Regiment, which had its origins in two earlier forces, the 28th and the 61st Regiments of Foot. They served in Europe, North America, India, Australia and the Crimea. They were based in Pembroke in the town, whilst the militia were based at the Defensible. They gained a nickname, the Slashers, based on an incident when an aggrieved trooper sliced off the ear of a local magistrate after a possible slight on a fellow soldier. The 61st saw similar service to the 28th, with the exception of the Crimea, during which period they were based in India. They also gained a nickname, the Flowers of Toulouse, a tribute to the bloodshed and the scarlet of their uniforms in battle. Later they merged with the Duke of Edinburgh's Royal Regiment, the Gloucesters, Berkshires and Wiltshires. And then finally, as the second battalion of the Gloucesters, who fought in the Boer War and then the First World War, now divided into two regular regiments, two militia and two volunteers. After four years of struggle and terrible losses, they actually gained only four miles of territory. After service in Burma in World War II, and gaining their reputation as the glorious Gloucesters in Korea in the 1950s, they merged with the Duke of Edinburgh's Royal Regiment, then, in 2007, emerged as the Rifle Regiment. At the outbreak of World War II, they found themselves in France, with the BEF in 1940, suffering from the retreat from Sedan to Anai and lastly Dunkirk losing some 484 men as prisoners of war. They were effectively wiped out as a fighting unit. The regular troops guarding the haven in its dockyards were supported by a more constant presence, that of the local volunteer forces. These infantry, cavalry and artillery units were originally created as a home defence force, similar in origin to that of the regulars formed on a county basis with the aim of relieving the regulars. It was the task of the Lord's Lieutenants of the counties to create them. These locally collected names can still be seen in landmarks like the gardens at Colby and the Calder Estate at Bosherston. Like the regulars, they evolved through a series of name changes with various titles such as Militia, Fencibles, Yeomanry and Dockyard Corps. These complex evolutions are described in detail in a historical study available at the Heritage Centre. Although the vast majority of their time was spent in mundane watchkeeping duties, they did have their moments of glory in the last invasion of England in 1797. The French had sent an invasion force initially to Ireland with a diversion plan to the Welsh coast. An ill-assorted force of regulars, mercenaries, and convicted prisoners landed near the fish guard. Baron Corder sent his volunteer unit and they, along with men of the Cardiganshire Militia and the Pembrokeshire Militia under Colonel Colby, prevailed against this ill-disciplined and often drunken mob, with a little help from the local ladies. By the time of the Boer War, the volunteer units were being absorbed into regular regiments like the Welsh Battalion, the Imperial Yeomanry, serving in South Africa. Shortly after this, the army reforms resulted in the merging of all the various volunteers into the territorial force 
and then the Territorial Army. This presence can still be seen today in the form of the 224th Pembrokeshire Yeomanry Royal Logistics Corps and their base at the rocket range at Manabir. The defensible barracks was home to the 1st and 2nd Companies of the 14th Prince of Wales' own West Yorkshire Regiment, early arrivals in 1844. The West Yorkshires, like many of their fellow regiments, would suffer numerous name changes in their history and absorb militia units as they evolved. As the Bedfordshire and Buckinghamshire battalions, they would emerge after the 1880s reforms as the Prince of Wales' own West Yorkshire Regiment. Along the way, they absorbed another regiment, the 51st Regiment of Foot, themselves adding light infantry and other titles, various militia and volunteers, and finally become the King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry, then the Light Infantry, in 1968. These troops, like their counterparts over the next 150 years, would find the defensible less than impressive, being damp, dark and unwelcoming. At least one trooper, Robert Harding, climbing the hill drunk on his way back to barracks, came to grief in the waters of the moat. The regiment itself would see service in all the major foreign campaigns and both world wars. The Wiltshires, unlike other infantry regiments, the Wiltshires' origins weren't with the local nobility, but resulted from an order expanding the senior regiments in 1856 into a second battalion. As the 62nd foot, their earliest action of note occurred in Ireland in 1760. A small troop of raw recruits at Carrickfergus Castle was heavily outnumbered by French attackers. As their ammunition ran low, they used their uniform buttons as bullets. They were defeated, but honourably so. Originally nicknamed the Moonrakers due to their smuggling connections, during their next mission in North American theatre, they acquired a new tag. General Burgoyne, watching a spirited bayonet charge, labelled them the Springers. From the early 1800s, their two battalions served in India in the Sikh Wars, the Peninsula and the Crimea. In 1874, they had gained important patronage to become the Duke of Edinburgh's regiment. Then, in the 1881 reforms, they merged with the 99th Lancashire Regiment, adding to the 99th campaigns in South Africa, Burma, Australia, New Zealand and China, now as the Wiltshire Regiment. The 99th had fought in the Opium Wars in China and were part of the infamous looting of the Summer Palace. It was there that they liberated a small spaniel, which they presented to Queen Victoria, now named Luti, <coughs> the dog, not the Queen. Their relationship with the volunteers go back to the 1500s with the formation of the militia and the 1st Battalion, the Wiltshire Rifle Volunteers. These units were home-based until the Territorial Forces Act of 1908, and they evolved into the 4th Battalion, the Wiltshire Special Reserve. The Wiltshire seemed to be the only regiment who actually made more than one visit to Pembroke Dock. They passed through between 1848 and 53. En route to the Crimea, then in 1865, they're recorded as relieving the East Surrey Regiment. They were a definite presence in 1905 when they relieved the King's Somerset Light Infantry, staying until 1908, and billeted at the then state-of-the-art barracks at Lanyon, 
a considerable improvement on the tents and huts at Bush Camp. As one of the senior regiments of the British Army, the 3rd Regiment of Foot, later the Royal East Kent Regiment, shared the experiences of their fellow infantry regiments. Grueling campaigns in Europe in the 18th century, policing Victoria's empire in the next century in India, China, Australia and Africa. For the troops, life was usually brutish and often short, with poor and infrequent pay, harsh discipline and disease to contend with. Not only one of the senior, but it could lay claim to being the only regiment surviving from the 16th into the 17th century, formed by one of the swashbuckling lords, Thomas Morgan, and establishing a long tradition of campaigning in the Low Countries, evolving into the Holland Regiment of Foot in 1668. But the third foot could boast other features that made it unique. To earn a nickname wasn't unusual in the army. To have generated your own catchphrase was. Named the buffs, due to the colour of the buff facings of their uniforms, was fairly mundane. But the cry, steady the buffs, was unique. It was earned, at least according to Kipling, during the campaign on the northwest frontier of India in the 1890s. Legend has it of the small troop, exhausted and sick with fever, after an action against rebels in the small village of Billow, were rallied with this cry. A few years later, the regiment helped to create another universal label during fighting with rebels in Malaya, when they began to dip their uniforms in coffee for camouflage, khaki in the local tongue, which evolved into the familiar khaki. In mid-September of 1939, with the realisation that a new war was imminent, the powers that be realised that home depots for the thousands of new recruits and those returning to the colours would be inadequate. PDE, with its barracks and good rail links, was seen to be the answer. The second battalion of the buff was entrained for Pembroke in mid-1939, but there were grumbles from the men about this remote posting, who labelled it a drab little town, and worse. The officers made a valiant attempt to create a traditional officer's mess at the defensible, and the other ranks at Lanyon soon settled in. The local people, by now used to housing the military, welcomed them, and relationships many permanent were formed, some to be renewed many years later, after the trauma of the war, which broke out in September of that year, and changed all their lives. When the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, was formed, the Buffs were amongst the first regiments to be sent to France. That first harsh winter was spent in mundane work, guarding airfields and building defences. Unpopular duties ill-suited for the battles to follow. This period of phony war was shattered on the 10th of May 1940, when German forces broke through the Allies' defensive lines east of Brussels, and the whole weight of Hitler's panzers fell on them as they stormed across the rivers and canals of central Belgium. The 300-odd thousand men of the BEF were driven execrably back across these inadequate defences. A traumatic experience over the next 16 days for an army ill-prepared and facing a force better armed, better trained, highly mobile and motivated. Although a retreat, this period would be more fairly known as a fighting retreat and not the rout of some unfair characterisations 
a spirited but doomed attempt to stem the tide. For many of the buffs and the other regiments, it was, in the words of Shakespeare's Macbeth, the road to dusty death. The exhausted BEF were driven westwards towards the coast, marching through roads crammed with fleeing refugees, lacking rations, water and sleep, running out of ammunition, and without coherent orders they could only communicate by runners on foot or bicycle. It was a recipe for disaster, but they still managed to make several defensive stands, often with hastily assembled units formed from decimated regiments, clerks and cooks, drivers and downed airmen. The buffs, after being pushed back over the Dondre and Lys rivers, made their stand on the river Esco, near the town of Oudenard. This settlement, modest but of strategic importance, has a resonance for the East Kents. It was here in July of 1708 under Marlborough that they had fought a successful engagement with the French, a great victory which earned them battle honours. Two hundred years later, their descendants, the 6th Battalion, were engaged in battles in the same area in World War I. Now, on the 20th of May, with the Wiltshires, Gloucesters, the Royal Artillery and the East Surreys, the second faced another fierce struggle, ultimately unsuccessful, but vital in slowing the German advance, and their actions gained the regiment one of the few battle honours awarded during the retreat for the defence of the Esco. Meanwhile, their sister battalions, the 4th and 5th, although unconnected with PD, served in other theatres, in Malta, throughout the siege, in North Africa and Greece, where these territorial units once again showed their worth. Within days, retreating troops were forced into the final defensive cordon around Dunkirk, and, along with their French allies, sacrificed their own chance of escape, enabling the miracle of Dunkirk and the rescue of so many Allied troops. Dunkirk has been celebrated in so many books, TV documentaries, films and other accounts that the retreat has been forced into the background. We are fortunate at the Trust to have accessed many first-hand accounts, more so in the light of the difficulties in recording events during the chaos of the retreat. The sombre tally of losses over the period tell their own story. 90,000 missing, killed and wounded of these, over 600 are accounted for by the second bus, and of those a total of some 41,338 became prisoners of war from the retreat and the beaches of Dunkirk. Their capture was just the start of a saga of forced transfers by trains, trucks and canals over hundreds of miles to their POW camps in northern Poland and Germany. What followed was to be five years of poor rations, boredom and limited health care until they were released by the Russians. No more than a handful, including at least one of the bus, escaped south over the perilous routes to Spain then home. The postscript, as the men drifted back to the UK over the early post-war month, is being created at the Trust. Some 80 of the bus made it home and of these, several local men and those who have made relationships settled back in Pembroke. Their stories are a mixed picture of more or less successful adjustment. In some cases, the aftermath of physical and more frequently mental damage. All over the UK, the regiment spent the next few years rearming, retraining and re-equipping, preparing for the return to Europe and final victory.
Pembrokeshire maintains many of its regimental connections to the present day, and Pembroke Dock is especially recognised for its military past. It has a sad distinction of being the only dedicated military cemetery in Wales. You can discover more about this and information on the RAF, the Navy and Dockyard history of Pembroke Dock and of the county at the Pembroke Dock Heritage Centre, based in the former Dockyard Chapel. Cynhyrchir podlediad adleisiad gorffennol gan planed a'i ariannu gan arwain Sir Pembro. The Echoes of the Past podcast is produced by Planet and funded by Arwain Sir Bembro. Mm-hmm.